Hebrews in chapter 2. I want to begin reading really with verse 9. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Hear the word of God. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. For therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, whether a person knows it or not, the most important thing in their whole lives is to know Christ. So whether a person knows it or not, the most important thing in their life is to know Christ. Therefore, the greatest pursuit of a life is to know him. Uh, that should be the very focus of our attention. And the whole Bible is about Christ. I hope you're seeing that. I hope as we spend time together week after week, month after month, year after year for many of us, that I hope, hope we're seeing that, that the whole Bible is really about Christ. That's the focus of its attention. And as we think about the fact that the whole Bible is about Christ, when God has written a book for us, when God has written a book for us, and the theme is Christ, it would seem that the most significant thing in the context of life is knowing Christ. Of all the things that God could tell us, of all the things he could write about, of all the things we would need to know, I suppose, he spent a whole book writing about the person of Christ, Old Testament through New. And thus the pursuit of life for us should be to know Christ and none other. And the whole Bible is about Christ. And, and as we come to the book of Hebrews, what's so important for us and what is worth our passionate devotion, our passionate thinking, is that the book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ. The very theme of it is saying, this is who Christ is and he's greater, better, more significant, more important than any other. Thus, we should focus our attention on him. Just think about so far, if you've been with us for the last few weeks as we've worked our way through up until wherever we are now, the middle of chapter 2, the things which he's already said about Christ, he said first and foremost that he's the son that makes him different qualitatively than everyone else. He's not simply a prophet, but he's the very son of God. He's begotten, not made. That is to say, he's of the same stuff as God. So he comes to us, not with what he simply has heard, but what he knows because he is. And he comes, and he's the heir of all things, and that is all that the Father promised to give to him upon his death and resurrection is now his. We 
are the very inheritance of Christ. We're the ones the Father had given him, the ones the Father had promised him. All those who would believe, they belong to the Son, and thus he's the heir of us. We're his inheritance. And we share this inheritance then with him. All that is his is ours. All that is ours is his. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator that is through whom all things have been made. Thus, he's the very one who, who made us and he defines us, therefore. He tells us who we are and directs us in the context of our lives. He's the exact, he's the radiance of the glory of God that is to see him, is to see God. He's the exact imprint of God's very nature. He sustains everything by the word of his power. That is to say, because Christ is, we also exist. If he didn't, we wouldn't. It isn't, I think, therefore I am. It's that Christ thinks, therefore I am. He sustains everything by the very word of his power. He made purification for sins. Thus, he's the very one who saves. And he was resurrected because the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. He was resurrected. And he now sits. Think about that. He now sits, exists, lives at the right hand of majesty on high. In reality, this very one that walked the earth, the very one that Peter, James, and John, and all those guys knew, is now sitting in a place we can't see, but sitting in a real place, sitting at the very right hand of majesty of God that is ruling and reigning. And he has a name that is above every name. That is to say, when the name of Jesus is used, it trumps all names. Because he's above everything. And when we come in his name and we speak his name, of course, that is above every other name. Every other name is therefore under it in subjection, submission to him. That's this person of Christ. And the question then is, how do we relate to him? Well, certainly we relate to him as one who is our creator, that is the one who's defined us. We relate to him as the one who sustains our very being. We relate to him as the one who rules and reigns on high, who's the king, who's the Lord. We relate to him as one to whom we should obey. We relate to him as the very one who's the judge of the world. But you see, now as we come into this particular midstream chapter two, it isn't just the deity of Christ that the author of Hebrews is laying out for us. He's laying out for us something just as significant, just as important, and that is the humanity of Christ. Because you say, he's going to say, as he does in verse 10 of what I read, that he is the founder of our salvation. He's the one who's founded, who's originated, who's the very author of our salvation. To, to found something means that, that you know, if you found an organization, you create this organization and you set it up in such a way that others can come. And you're the first one there, but you bring others. Some of your translations have that he's the author of our salvation. That is, he's the one who wrote the book. He's the one who, who is the authority on it. He's the one who knows it, and he's the one who brings others into it. The old King James Version uh, has that he's the captain of our salvation, which I rather like because it, it, it has the sense that he's... He's the one on, the, on, the, on this ship, and he's the leader of all of us, you see. And he's the very captain of our salvation. He's, he blazed the trail, and he's worked it all in, and he comes back to get us, and he orders us through and gets us to the very end so that we too may be sons of glory, as it puts it. And so he's the very originator, the founder, the author, the captain of our salvation, and certainly he is. But not simply because he's God, but because he's God in the flesh, he's God incarnate. And we use that little word when we say something, someone is incarnate, we say that he embodies something as a human being would. 
if you say that someone is kindness incarnate, you're saying, well, that person embodies kindness. If you say that someone is evil incarnate, you're saying that that person embodies evil. When we speak of Jesus, we're saying he's God incarnate, God in the flesh, God who's become man and dwelt among us, continues to be God. His very nature is God, but he's taken on another nature as well, and that is this nature of humanity. And he's done that for a particular purpose, for a particular reason, which I hope we'll see in this week and next week. This is, you wouldn't expect me to get through all this this week. And so, but it's important to see it because there's two very salient, significant points here that we must see about the humanity of Jesus and why it is that he had to become a man in order to become the founder of our salvation. We'll see that this week and next but in the context of all that, of course, as, as he becomes man, we, 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 we have this, this mystery and uniqueness of Jesus. Certainly it's unique. There's no one else in all creation, there's no one else in all the universe who has two natures and yet still remains simply one person. And his natures are these, divine and human. And thus he's unique, but it's also mysterious in the sense that we don't know anybody else like that. And it's difficult to have a category in our brain for someone who is really like that. We don't know anybody else like that. Here he is, the very one who's existed for all time. And that's a difficult concept to get your arms around, isn't it? Eternity. You know, someone who has no beginning. And when we hear about someone with no beginning, we want to ask the question, yes, but when did it start? Yes. It always has been. And we don't know that. Other than it's declared to us, that's who God is. And so here's this very one with no beginning, but yet as man, he had a beginning at a particular moment in time, at a particular point in time. Yes, he was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit, but he was, he was formed then and grew in his mother as every child does. That he was birthed as every child is. And he grew up as every child does. And he experienced life as every human being does. Now, he did it without sin, but that doesn't make him unhuman. Adam, a human, first created one, and Eve lived a period of time as human beings without sin. And so it isn't unhuman to live without sin. In fact, for believers in Christ, we will live throughout eternity, after our death and perfection, without sin. And we will continue to be human. We won't be angels. I don't know that we're going to fly. No, we're going to be human beings, but without sin. And thus Jesus, a human being without sin. So here he is experiencing life as a human being who perfectly experienced life, everything there is. He was born, he was raised, he grew up in a family, and all of that, he understood hunger, he understood weariness, he understood frustration, he understood anger, he understood um, sorrow, he understood grief, and all of these to a degree that we probably never really have. He experienced all of that as a human being, including death. In fact, it's interesting that in any one event we can see both the deity and the humanity of Jesus. I mean, there he was at the wedding, at a, at a wedding at a place called Cana. 
And, and a wedding is a very human thing to go to. I suppose he thought, well, I'm going to a wedding. I have to wear particular clothes. And so he put dress-up clothes on, you know, to go to the wedding. And so he would be received and accepted in the context of the wedding. And he went, and he was expecting certain things to happen. Then they ran out of wine, and he took some water and made some more. Why? So we see his humanity and his deity all at once. There was a time when Jesus was asleep in the boat. He was asleep like any tired man would be. And his disciples were awake. Big storm came up. They woke up Jesus from his human sleep. And he got up and he just simply said, quiet. And the storm ceased. And here we see his humanity and his deity all at once. He was called to the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had died. And he experienced human grief just like any person would experience human grief. He understood death in a way even that we do not. And he understood death supremely. And he wept because he knew the sorrow of it as a man would. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And you see the humanity and the deity of Jesus all together. One person, two natures, unique, mysterious, and there you are. And it was necessary, you see, that he would become a man because the author of Hebrews lays it out like this. He says, now this is a great salvation that the founder, the author, the captain of our salvation brings and it's great because we lost something that he restores, and only another man can do that. Turn back. This is all a review, as you know. Turn back to chapter 2 and verse 6. Because here's a passage that speaks of us. It's a passage that speaks of humanity. It's a quote of Psalm 8, but it puts it in context. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, that somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little... Uh, for a little while, lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And we hearken back, we think back to the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned, and we realized that they were to take dominion over the earth. So God put the earth under God in submission to human beings. And yet we know because of sin that that place, if you will, was lost by us. In fact, the earth was cursed, and so it fights back. And we know we don't see things under submission to us now because there are things way bigger than us that we cannot control. Tornadoes, hurricanes, even our plantings, and most especially death. Death comes and death wins in everybody's life once. And so if we're going to take dominion over the earth, the earth is good. The world's going to have submission in the sense the earth is going to be submissive to us. Then death can't really continue to beat us, but it continues to. And so how is that going to stop? And we know the reason for this death is our sin, our rebellion against God. And it comes as his just condemnation for sin. And so as this passage says, at present, middle of verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to us. But what do we see? It says, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, in coming and tasting death for us, he stands for us in every way. But in order to taste death for us, he had to be like us. So the question is this. Why is it that he had to become a man? Why is it that that was necessary for him to become a man, for him to take on humanity 
in order for him to be the founder of our salvation? And that's a very, very important question. And it's one I think God wants, the answer, wants us to have the answer to. And I think he wants us to have the answer to it because he gives us the answer to it in this particular passage. But we need to know that. We need to know that God desires for us to know him. And he desires for us to know him and even the intricacies of how we were saved. And he wants us to know the intricacies of how we were saved because he desires for us to trust him and to love him. And you see, in order to love and trust him, we must know him. Now, there's a philosophy afoot in these days, and it isn't really new. It just comes under a little bit of a new guise, but uh, there's nothing new under the sun. So you can find every particular wrong thinking about God uh, from the beginning, from history. But this particular one starts out in a very nice way. It says this. It says, God is infinite and lofty and transcendent and great beyond us. All right. Comma. Therefore, he's unfathomable and we cannot know him. Now, you see, in one sense, that's true. He is unfathomable, and we cannot know him, in the sense that his ways aren't our ways, our thoughts aren't his thoughts. I mean, I struggle with geometry. I mean, so, you know, figuring out God could be a little bigger task. And so, so, so yes, in that sense, he's unfathomable. But see, the great danger of that kind of thinking is, is, is that it means that we could never say anything definitive about God that we can never really know him and not to know him, therefore how could we trust him? And not to trust him, how could we love him? We can't do any of that unless we really know him. And it really begs the purpose for the scripture having been written. You see, God knows that in and of ourselves we cannot figure him out. Oh, we can look at the creation, but still we'll wonder. And so very specifically, he writes to us in a book and he writes to us this revelation so that we can know him, so that we can trust him so that we can love him. In fact, the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing seem to be having a very great difficult trusting God. He warns them about continuing to have faith and not to have hard hearts so that they can continue to persevere in the faith. And he's giving them the information that we've read this morning so that they can continue to trust him. So we must need it. It must be important. This must be a way that we, we need to know about God so that it will help us trust him and to love him more because you see we can't separate loving and trusting God from knowing him and we can't separate knowing God from knowing Christ because he is the exact representation of the being of God he's the radiance of God's glory and we can't separate knowing Christ from knowing what the scripture says about him so it's important for us to, to nail this it's important for us to delve into this so Let's do that, asking this question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to become human in order to become, to be the founder of our salvation? Now, I have to tell you, this is a two-weeker, so we'll only get to part one of the answer. There's two answers for the two parts of this, and only part one this week. And this week begins in verse 10. It says, for, that is, the reason why he had to, taste death for everyone, the reason why he had to suffer as a man, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. See, the first reason why it was necessary for Jesus to become a man, to become the founder of our salvation, was because it was fitting for God. 
In other words, it fit God. It fit God to do it that way. I mean, if we really knew God well, then we'd know that this is exactly the way God would do it because it fit him, hand in glove. It fit him. It was, it was appropriate for him. And you see, that's precisely the way it should be because everything, this passage tells us, is by him and for him. All things exist for God and by him. Thus, our whole salvation must be fitting for him. Our whole salvation must reflect him. Our whole salvation really is for him. Now, we oftentimes get the cart before the horse on this one. We oftentimes think our salvation is first and foremost for us. We oftentimes think that our salvation is because we need it. Well, we certainly do. And it certainly is for us. But that's secondary. Primarily, foundationally, our salvation is for God. Because our salvation exists for him, as does everything else. This little verse is very similar to one in Romans. Don't turn to it because I'll read it by the time you find it. And I'm not going to tell you where it is until I get there. Romans chapter 11 verse 36 says this. It says, for whom, it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Same idea. To him be glory forever. You see, everything exists to glorify God, even our salvation. And so we think about our salvation, the reason it was fitting for Jesus to become a man so that we could, he could be the founder of our salvation so that we could be saved is because that glorifies God. And you say, well, how does this glorify God? How does this, how does this show him? How does this make him look great? The way that it makes him look great is twofold. Number one, this. It shows his perfect holiness, his perfect justice. You see, if our sin is against God, and if God is holy, then he must punish. But on the other hand, you see, if God's love is holy, and on the one hand he must punish, what about us? Does that mean he'll simply judge, that, it, that he'll simply be content to cast all into hell? And the answer is no, because his love is so great that he'll do whatever is necessary in order to save. And what is necessary in order to save is for he himself to come and he himself to take the penalty for our sin that we might be saved. Because you see, love is measured by at least three things. First this, love is measured by the costliness, the greatness of the sacrifice that's made. The greater the sacrifice for another, the greater the love. And to know how much you are loved by another, see what they give for you, see what they sacrifice for you. I remember my father expressing love to me one time when there was one piece of chocolate cake left. And he gave it to me and I thought, he loves me. It might be minor to you, but it was major to me. Without the costliness of the salvation, obviously that's trivial because the costliness of this salvation is God giving his son. And, and one of the reasons that this relationship in the Trinity is father-son is because we understand that. We know the relationship between father and son. We know the love between father and son. And thus for one to give one son is to give everything. So love isn't measured simply by the costliness of the sacrifice, but it's also measured by the deservedness of the recipients of that love. 
the more undeserving the recipient, the greater the love. I mean, it's very easy to love the lovable, but it's very difficult to love the unlovable. And so when God loves us, you see, he's loving those who've rebelled against him. Romans 5.8 says, for God demonstrates his love for us in this. And that's a very significant his. We could translate that, for God demonstrates his own kind of love for us in this. That is, this love is unique to God. This is the way that God loves and only God expresses this kind of love for God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is, while we were still undeserving and undeserving to the max for what we deserved was condemnation, yet he came and loved us to sacrifice his own son for us. The apostle goes on to say that, you know, it's possible that a person might give their life for someone righteous or someone good, but God gives his life for us while we were yet sinners. Third measure of love is the joy to which one sacrifices, the greatest sacrifice for the most undeserving. This isn't God's duty. He wasn't gritting his teeth when he did this. This wasn't begrudging. This wasn't a kind of thing that he was hesitant to do or didn't want to do. But the scripture says amazingly that it was for the joy that was set before the Lord Jesus that he went to the cross. It's amazing, isn't it? That he went because he, he was joyful for the outcome, which was love for us being the founder of our salvation. And you see, it's fitting to God, and it shows his glory because we end up saying, who else is like that? Who else would do that? Who else would give this most precious one to the least deserving with great joy in order that we might receive that which we don't deserve to have? Only God. So you see, the salvation is fitting because it would be completely unfitting for God to allow that which was by him and for him to simply go to another, to simply be ruled by another, to simply show the glory of another. And so that which is by him and for him, you see, is for his glory. So he comes and he says, I'm taking control of this. And I'm loving. And I'm just. And you'll see. So it's fitting because you see this salvation glorifies God like nothing else could possibly glorify him. It reflects him like nothing else could that he comes and saves. But this second, it's fitting for God because, I'll read this verse again. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, Christ had to become a man so that he could become perfect. And you say, wait a minute. Don't tell me that Christ wasn't perfect. And I'll say, okay, I won't. I'll let the author of Hebrews tell you he wasn't perfect. And you say, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus was without sin. That's true. He was without sin. This suffering wasn't to purify him from sin at all. It's not that kind of perfection. It's clear. In fact, we'll find at least three or four different occasions when we read through the book of Hebrews together that the author of Hebrews says that he's without sin, that he's without blemish, that he's spotless, that he's pure. The perfection is in being the founder of our salvation. The only way he could be the founder of our salvation, the only way he could be the be perfect in that role, be qualified for that, was to suffer as a human being suffered because, you see, he was coming to save people from their sins and he had to enter, therefore, into our own existence and our own experience so that he could reverse 
what Adam lost. And so you see, he comes and he suffers as us. Do you understand that every time you fail, Jesus faced an experience like that and succeeded? Do you realize that every time you sin, every time I sin, that Jesus faced a situation just like that and didn't sin? And so you see, going through the very sufferings, the very life of a human being qualifies him, makes him perfect to be the founder of our salvation. There was something necessary in that. The scripture speaks of Jesus in the book of Revelation as a lamb who had been slain before the creation of the world. Oh yes, in the mind of God. But a time had to come when he actually did it and he actually came. And it was in the coming and the doing and the suffering and the living as a human being and facing everything that we face as us that he was qualified to be the very one, to be the founder of our salvation. It was impossible for him otherwise. But he now becomes perfect, qualified in that. So it was fitting for Jesus to become a man just like us. And so finally this. It's fitting because, you see, this is the only way of salvation. There's no other way that human beings could possibly be reconciled to God apart from Christ. And you may say, Bill, how do you know that? Well, I could quote scripture to you. I could say that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I could quote the passage that says that there's been no name given among men other than the name of Jesus by which they must be saved. We could talk about that in Acts 4.12. But we could also picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that moment? There he was as us, perhaps as purely as we could ever imagine, facing real death. And he understood real death way better than any of us do. Because Jesus understood real death, not simply in the loss of breath, in the beating of a heart. But he understood death as it is, condemnation from God. And he understood as he faced death, though it wouldn't be for his own sin, it would be for the sin of others, and there he was. And as he was facing that death as a man, he agonized more deeply than perhaps a human being has ever agonized. So much so, the scripture said he sweat drops of blood. And that's how integrated his whole being was at that point in time. And he went to his father, if you remember, he said, if there's any other way that this cup could pass, is there any other way that I could accomplish what it is I've come to accomplish? Is there any other way that I could be the founder of their salvation? Then I, please let this cup, that is, this death, let this cup pass, not to suffer this. And you know the very clear answer of his father. No, that there isn't any other way. Had there been another way, surely a father would find it for his son. If there is any other way that this could take place other than the pain of the father and the pain of the son. Surely there would be another way that was found, but surely there wasn't. And you see, to be the founder of our salvation, he must become a man because, you see, he must be as us and take all of our suffering and all of our guilt and shame upon himself. And thus he did. And of course, it logically makes sense as well. I was in a meeting recently where a number of us 
pastor types were sitting around talking about culture, present culture, how it is that the gospel fits in the context of our present culture. There were some historians among us that talked about previous cultures and all that kind of thing. I really was exhausted. And, uh, but, but, but the good news for all of us in the midst of all this is regardless of the cu culture, there's still only one problem and one solution. It really boils down to something very simple. That regardless of whether we're modern, postmodern, or whatever it is that we're becoming culturally, the very point of the fact is that we can't get around the fact that sin is the problem and our rebellion against God. That's really the problem. And so whatever anybody says, that's what we have to nail. That's what we have to get at. No matter how people relate to this notion, still that's what we have to understand, that there's one problem, and the problem is sin. And the, the question is, how can we face God? Of course, some get around it by simply saying there isn't a God. Well, you can live in that denial until you face him. And then the reality of the fact will be, be there. So that it really only buys you some fantasy peace for a while. Or you can say that God really isn't holy. But again, once you face him, and you may say, well, I can really achieve this by, by satisfying, by pleasing him, by doing everything right. And of course... That should only take a minute to dispel. And so that's the one problem. The question is one solution. And of course the answer is, there must be someone other than me who can take the penalty for sin. Because if I take the penalty for my own sin, of course, the end result is that I'll spend eternity dying for my sin. And there isn't any other time to get out of it. And thus someone else must come then to pay that. Someone like me, but yet without sin, because if the one who comes to pay it for me is sinful, then that person will spend eternity paying for his sin. There won't be any time left to save me. And so this one must come like me who has no sin. And then this one who comes like me who has no sin must be worth us all. It must be one who the Father looks at and sees this one is so valuable that one act of obedience is an act of obedience for all. That one good word must be a good word for all. That one drop of blood must be so valuable that it's sufficient to pay for all. And there isn't anyone like that other than this one who is the Son. And he's so valuable because he's divine. And he's so valuable because he is God. And he's so valuable because he's the son of God. And then he comes as us, you see. And he lives in such a way for us that every time he obeys, he obeys for all. And when he dies, therefore, his blood is so valuable that it's sufficient to buy all those who are his. So he comes as us, for us, more valuable than any other because he's the very one. Thus, the author of Hebrews here tells us in verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11, says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is, the one who saves and the one who are being saved are alike in this sense, that is, we're all brothers. We all have human nature, Christ in us. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, which is pretty amazing. Isn't it amazing? Have you ever thought about this? That Jesus doesn't mind saying that you're related to him? 
I mean, we all have relatives. I have to be careful because my relatives are here, but I love them, so this doesn't apply to them. But we all have relatives that we really don't want to claim. But Jesus doesn't mind that at all. In fact, it says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Do you understand that at every point in time, he's not ashamed of us? Why? Because he knows us. And he's been in a situation like we've been in. And he's conquered it for us. That's why he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And so he comes by the Holy Spirit and speaks this truth to us. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, he says, I will put my trust in him. That's Jesus saying he puts his, his trust in the Father. Because you see, in coming to live his life for us, he comes as a person of faith. And in the mystery of the incarnation of God becoming man, still he lives by faith. He says, I, I've come not to do my will, but the will of my Father. I've come, and I won't say anything that originates with me. I only say that which comes from my Father. I only do the things that I see him do. And so he comes and he puts his faith completely, his trust completely in God, as we're to do. And he does it for us. And again, he says, behold, the children God has given me, that's us. And thus he stands with us. And so you see, it's fitting that he would become a man because it glorifies God for him to do that. It shows who God is like nothing else. It shows the wonder of God's justice and yet the wonder of his kindness and love. And not only that, it's fitting because he now qualifies to stand for us because he came as us and experienced life as us. And not only that, it's fitting because it's the only way. He is our brother for us. The one who is so valuable to be able to stand for us. So what? I mean, so where do we end up with all this? I mean, at the end of all this, what's at the end of the day, what does it mean that Christ became a man because it was fitting for God to be the perfect founder of our salvation, the one and only way, our brother? Well, this first, that I think it achieves what the author of Hebrews wants us wants to achieve, and that is. Doesn't it make you love him? I mean, think of it. Think of the context of your own love, your life. Whoever has loved you like that? Who whoever has given like that? Whoever has sacrificed like that? And whoever has done it with such great joy? You see, we don't back into heaven. We go face up because he delights to see us. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He did it because he loves. And you understand that if you believe that he did it because he loves you like that. I don't really have any illustrations. I don't have any analogies. I don't know what to compare that to because I think it's incomparable. But it should turn us, doesn't it? To say, what great love, I love him. And shouldn't that turn us to trust him? Because, because whatever, who else would we trust other than the one who, is, who God says, this is fitting for me, this is my way. I've written a whole book about it. And so this should be the focus of your attention, to, to trust him, because there's no one else like him. 
because there's no one else who's done this, because there's no one else who's qualified to do this. There's no one else that I value more than him. He's the very one you should trust. Shouldn't it cause us to love him and to trust him, you see? Because he's the very founder of our salvation. There's one more thing, and that's next week. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that we would embrace the fact that your son becoming man and suffering, tasting death for us is fitting for you. That that would enable us to love you, to know that this was your plan, not ours. This is your way, not ours. Father, if left our own devices, we'd come up with a plan that would think that we could be good enough for this. And that your plan was knowing since we're not, that you would give this one of such great value for us. I pray it sinks in, whether we know it, and then it causes us to love you and to trust you, the very one who is the author, founder, captain of our salvation made perfect through suffering. That he might overcome death for us, that we might live and be restored to that very place for which you established at creation. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> As you do, I remind you that the response to the benediction is this. The response to the benediction is, Christ suffered for me. Hallelujah. Not for me, well, for me, but when you say me, you mean you. Right? Christ suffered for me. When you're saying that, you're saying that he came just like me. And he lived a life, a human life like, like mine. And at every step of the way, he trusted where I sinned. He succeeded where I failed. He suffered my death for me. And then the only response, if you really believe that, is hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore and all God's people said Christ suffered for me hallelujah <laughs>